if you have a strong enough intuition and thought yourself on what matters and you talk to someone and they can articulate it better than you can and they can structure it into these six areas basically that we have to focus on, that's when it actually makes sense. So the principles you're operating on are the same and then they can operationalize it and add to it and augment it and bring their own vision into it and actually make it happen over a time span. Yeah, those would be the, the tips I would give out, yes. Welcome to the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast, powered by Gusto. On this show, we explore the intersection of fintech, vertical SaaS, and how software combats the rising complexity of running a business. Our goal is to share stories, advice, and best practices from the leaders and investors behind today's cutting-edge platforms. This episode of the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast is brought to you by Gusto Embedded. Gusto has spent a decade building and testing its payroll, tax filing, and compliance infrastructure, which is available as a robust set of APIs so you can develop custom-tailored payroll solutions. For more information, go to embedded.gusto.com. Here's your host, Brian Bush. On this episode of the SMB Tech Innovators podcast, my guest is Jason Zhang, the co-founder and CEO of Mercury, a fintech offering banking services for startups of all sizes, through their partner banks. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. I noticed you just put on your podcast voice, which is very serious and authoritative sounding. So I, I like that you have one. <laughs> I, I'm told it's just because of the fancy microphone. I'm excited for this one, Jason, and I want to dive right in. So let's start. Please tell us a little bit about your background. And specifically, I understand you and one of your co-founders, Imad, met when you were working at a company called HayZap. So Talk to me a little bit about what your background is, what brought you to Mercury, and anything that carried over from that past experience that kind of was the light bulb for what you're doing today. So I'm the COO of Mercury today, which means I do a whole range of business things. It's kind of like a, a fun grab bag, but I can tie it together at the end. I guess specifically, that means I work with the risk, compliance, CX, legal, product design, and people teams. So it's a pretty wide range of just business things. The way I got here was I started working at a company called HayZap right after college. And the CEO was Imad, who's now the CEO of Mercury. And actually, the other co-founder for Mercury, Max, who's the CTO, was also an engineer at HayZap back in the day. And when I joined, it was a just imagine a typical tech startup in San Francisco, Silicon Valley back in 2012 maybe a team of 15, 20 people trying to find product market fit. They'd already been going for four years at that point. And I didn't know anything about startups. So I came in just trying to find a job. I studied biology in college, specifically ecology and evolution, which you can imagine there's just literally no job market for, or the job you can find pay like 35K per year. I remember I was looking at a job that was like, go survey golden eagles off the coast of Mexico. And it sounds like very glamorous, but you're really just in the back of a truck with binoculars looking at eagles in the sky for nine hours a day getting paid nothing. So I just tried to find a job and make Red and SF. And I applied for this job on the job board, which is for Hazat. Seemed like it was a real job. I was close to home. I could actually pay some money. And I interviewed a bunch of weird interviews. And I finally got it. And I started off basically doing sales for the company. And hey, at that point, I guess I was 15, 20 people. And I would say, I want to say the majority of the company was engineers, maybe like 60, 70% engineers. We had basically no other function besides sales and like the two co-founders, Maud and Jude. So it was a very like hyper-optimized team in that 
we were desperately trying to find product market fit. Either have people that can build stuff or have people that can sell stuff. But obviously, there needs to be a lot of other stuff that happens at a company. Over the years, I guess, I just picked up random other things. I started writing copy for websites. I started taking customer feedback to the engineers and say, Hey, how about we you know, build this thing? And over the course of multiple trips, I just picked up a bunch of different skills. And over time, that kind of morphed into the role I have today, which is a reasonable experience in a bunch of different things. And I kind of just care about all of it. I wonder if there is a connection between, hey, studying biology and ecology, evolution, just the systems thinking side of that lends itself well to the operational side of a business, because really you're the one who has to make all the pieces fit together, make the gears turn in unison, so to speak. Brian, I love that you say that because it really justifies my college education, but I don't know if it's actually true. But uh, let's just say that it actually is true and I'm good at thinking about the system because of my biology background. I love it. We can send it to we can send that clip to the folks whenever you need a thanks for supporting my education sort of moment. Send it to my parents, send it to my professors for sure. Absolutely. So let's turn to Mercury. And this is the heart of what I really want to get into today is kind of educate the listeners a little bit more under the hood. I think we've all heard this term neobank a fair bit. So I really want to understand for folks what that really means. So how does Mercury differentiate itself from a traditional bank? especially when it comes to, to specifically serving startups? Yeah. There's an easy answer for this, Brian, which is it looks and feels and it just works better than a bank. And it's like an actual bank product. But I actually want to give a slightly more detailed answer. So I'll start with like a little bit of a shield, which is why do banks exist? And I'm thinking about like when we first started Mercury, I came up with the initial idea to do a bank for startups. And he was pitching me on it. My initial thought was, first, this is a great practical idea for a business. Like, It just makes sense. It's something that I can actually explain to my parents what it does and how it makes money, which I mentioned Hayes out. But after four or five pivots, the company ended up getting acquired, but it was in a very niche space. It was mediation for mobile ads in mobile games, something like that. Actually, a huge market. A ton of money goes into it, but very hard to explain to a layperson what it actually does. And bank for startups, that just makes obvious sense. My next question after that was actually like, what is a bank though? What does it actually mean to go start a bank and what do banks actually do? So if you think about like the, at this point, I have a bit of a more developed opinion, I guess, but if you think about the actual business of banking, like how banks actually make money, it's usually through loans. And what that means is they're a services business that's really good at acquiring deposits. They can bring in a bunch of customers, they provide service, they make those customers feel like those deposits are safe and secure. And they might also even give them a little bit of a return on interest. So you can maybe make a little bit of money because you put your deposit in the bank. And then in turn, the bank can then deploy those funds on a portfolio of debts of various risk. Essentially, the bank is this engine of like risk-taking that builds a portfolio of risk that then can uh, generate profit and you know, ideally stimulate the economy and have all this other stuff that's good for society, which makes sense. If you think about how bank incentives work and how banks create value, that's how they create values through like smart risk taking, essentially. But if you think about Mercury and I guess like the founders, our story, just how we approach building the business and the company and the products, this is going to sound almost dumb. It's so simple. It's we like building products. That's basically it. We like building technology products. We like building things that work really well. We like crafting great experiences companies, which is the typical Silicon Valley ethos, I guess. To go back to the question of how we differentiate ourselves for the startup market, we're not a bank that's trying to build technology products. We're a technology company building banking, which almost sounds like a semantic trick or 
like, I don't know, compliance disclaimer, but it's like a very simple principle, I guess, that gets to the heart of what makes us different. And you can apply that principle across like a whole range of things and just see how it manifests in different outcomes for the customer. An example of this would be, let's just take like onboarding an example. So onboarding is one of the things that Merkle customers tend to love. It's a feature that people will tweet about and write in about and say, hey, this is such a great experience. And if you just look at the surface of it, it's you can do onboarding online, which is as surprising as it might be. The baseline for business banking is actually you walk into a bank branch and you sign up for a bank account in the bank branch. It's not just that it's online. It's actually productized. If you look at like the actual the form itself, we hired great people that love building things to build a great form. And that sounds simple, but it's you go in and, and every drop down is a combo box because we didn't want people to spend time having to use their mouse. So you can just type whatever you want in and auto completes. Everything saves you go. There's product principles that go into it to make the actual app experience very good. And if you think about one layer deeper, you go to how the bank app manages risk and fraud. We think about it as a product. An example of this would be a traditional bank, when you sign up, they might ask you for expected activity. So how are you going to use the account next month? What types of volume are you going to have? What services are you going to use? And for a newly formed company, that stuff doesn't make any sense because you just started. You might have raised money. You might not have. Maybe you put in 100 bucks for a personal account. How am I supposed to know how much revenue I'm going to make in the next year? I literally have no idea. I'm trying to build a business here. Still, banks require that because it helps inform their regulatory and risk programs and compliance programs. But for Mercury, we can actually build it as a product, right? So we hired a great data scientist that can look at our portfolio of companies and say, here's the baseline for how companies actually uh, operate on Mercury. And we can just set that as the baseline. And then ongoing, you can build products to say, we're going to monitor all the activity from these companies as they develop and just see how they spike or differ from like the baselines that we've set. This is oversimplified, but it's like an illustration. And what that ends up meaning is there's way less friction for the customer because as we're going, we're actually adapting to real activity and we have a product built around understanding the customer versus just being this like risk program that's basically a service business that's run by people. And then you can go into the Rails piece, which is actually, I guess, similar to what like Gusto Embedded is doing. And we can actually build products that tie different partners in the ecosystem together to actually make sure the end experience is great for the customer. Versus it just being, take whatever rails the bank has and then just put the information in there. It's just like every stage is basically crafted to make sure the experience actually makes sense for our target customer and is like a great user experience. Jason, I love that. And I love the thread of, hey, it's simple from the idea behind Mercury to the core tenants of the product piece that you're talking about. Like, hey, hire great people to build a really simple form. I just love that thread. I want to make sure I double click on a couple of those pieces you mentioned that traditional banks are this engine for taking risk effectively. And you've been able to productize a little bit of that risk-taking in a sense by hiring the team of data scientists and using more, more ongoing data than a traditional bank would. You're not actually holding... Or Mercury is not actually holding the funds. Your partner banks are. So I'm curious how that conversation, if you will, looks. They kind of say, hey, our risk engine needs X, Y, and Z inputs. And you're saying, I'd like like you to do something a little bit differently, or I'd like to augment one of those inputs to your risk engine. Talk to me just a little bit about, are you, is the data product that you're building effectively feeding the traditional inputs to your partner bank's risk engine? Or are you finding a way to say, hey, it's not A, but it'll be B, and we think B is just as good? I'd say it's a mix of both, and it's shifted over the course of Mercury's history. I guess to begin with, we had a very small in-house risk compliance team. And going back to the 
point of being a technology company, we were super focused on just building a great product experience for the customer. And that was enabled by the partner bank model, which we have. A lot of the risk and client stuff ends up sitting with the outside partner that we use, the banks or payment partners that have developed teams. And it's a way to bootstrap that function without needing to develop it in-house. That's That was a great way to start and test and get out to the market and actually get our first batch of customers. But then as you scale, that model starts breaking because it ends up being the foundation of the customer experience ends up sitting externally versus internally. And that's like maybe the tricky part about neobanking that's not immediately obvious from looking at all the flashy front pages or whatever. You can talk about fast wires or free wires or fast onboarding, but then all this stuff is really constrained by the layer underneath, which is how you actually think about customers and how you're meeting like regulatory fraud and risk constraints. So over time, we brought more and more of that in-house. And now it's a mix of both. So we have to understand deeply, and this is a really close partnership with the banks or uh, payment partners that we work with. We have to understand deeply what they care about, why they care about those risks, and what obligations they have to their end regulators. So like the FDIC or whoever it is, OCC. And we have to make sure that we build our risk programs and compliance programs with those like end needs in mind. And then there's also some stuff that we understand particularly well about our customers. Things like we know that a million dollar wire or a five million dollar wire within the first week of incorporation might not be weird. We know that having a team of people that you only have one person in the US, the rest of them are in Peru, that's not weird for a US company, for a US startup anyway. We know that like wildly shifting payment amounts month over month isn't weird because startups go through ebbs and flows. That's our user understanding, our customer research our products and design teams going out and talking to customers and figuring out like what actually makes sense. Our data science team actually looking at the population. And then we craft our own controls based off that. And that becomes more of a process of we from first principles have something that we think are particularly useful in our industry to take smart risks. And then we can educate our partners on that piece of it. So it's like a twofold thing, I guess. So I appreciate that little deep dive into it. And I want to bring back, we talked about the onboarding experience Obviously, in the wake of the Silicon Valley Bank situation, I'm sure that drove a lot of very happy customers to Mercury, just given the fact that onboarding was so easy in the wake of that crisis. You mentioned the payment rails as well. So one, would love to hear kind of specifically around that, how that kind of came through for Mercury from your side. But also, you mentioned the rails piece. I think that's a pretty interesting benefit to a startup being able to tie together different financial services from different providers that they just don't have to worry about the complexity on the back end. They get all of the benefit on the front end. Yeah. Actually, I have one example that maybe is like a good illuminating anecdote for both those things, both the SDB crisis and the ability for Mercury to kind of tie in the best in class partners. And, you know, what actually ended up driving a ton of volume for us afterwards is we shipped and launched a feature called Mercury Vault in the weekend over which the SDB news is happening. So if I remember the timeline correctly, it was something like SDB actually failed on a Friday. And FDIC stepped in on Sunday. And in the meantime, we'd actually ship this product. <laughs> For the customer, the benefit is basically take all these different pieces that they would have had to go to a bunch of different partners to get before and tie it into a really simple package that meets the actual customer need around, I need to know that my money is safe. And I need to know that I'm doing smart things with my money. I'm not... This is like my company's lifeblood here. I'm not jeopardizing at all my making like a poor decision here. And for most founders, their competence isn't in evaluating like bank risk or financial risk. Although that has become part of the founder toolkit in the last few months. But at that point, it was 
I'm just going to put my money into Mercury or SCV and not worry about it. I'm going to go run my company. The reason why we were actually able to ship this so fast is because we had a partner bank model where we had a bunch of different providers on the back end that we could stitch together. So it was almost like a product sleight of hand. So we actually had products already. We had a treasury product that allowed you to have to put money into essentially government T-bills. And we had a million dollars in FDIC insurance, which we worked over the weekend with our partners. They were super, super responsive to increase to $5 million. And we had, I guess, instant fund flows or quick fund flows at least between these different providers. And what we needed to do was package that in a way that attracted the complexity away for the founder. Because the founder just wants to know, my money is safe. We put it into one DAC for base that told you exactly where your money was, how much is FDIC insured, and then allowed you to really easily move into treasuries afterwards. Very simple product. And that was enabled by the ability to have multiple partners on the back end that, that we could stitch together to create this experience. I appreciate you diving in and adding a little color there. I want to ask, are there cons for the customers? Are there downsides to, to the partner bank model? And really, if I look at it, you talk about abstracting away the complexity that typically goes with financial services. You talk about just a wildly simplified and therefore we're in the tech bubble, but I think we understand improved user experience. I don't really see for folks, especially startups that you're serving... I don't see where the downsides could be for this model. It's an interesting question. I think there's a couple things. The first is, I think it depends a lot on the exact company that is partnering and the relationship you have. Because Mercury actually is at large enough scale now that we're a priority with the partners. Like I said, we developed our own fantastic in-house risk compliance team. But for a lot of companies that are in the scaling phase, they've just started off with these uh, new partners it's difficult to actually control the end user experience because let's say you onboard onto a new bank, uh, banking app or something, and the partner at the other end doesn't understand the activity, they might shut down onboarding or something like that, or they might lock your account. And then at that point, it actually becomes more difficult because you're basically interfacing with the end decision maker through a middle layer that doesn't have decision-making authority. And that ends up in a more frustrating customer experience. So that's something that we encountered while we were scaling, obviously. So I think for the long tail of banking apps, that ends up being like a downside is, you know, it's difficult to find the end person that can actually make the decision. I think if you don't do a good job of explaining transparently what the relationship is, there can be customer confusion. And this is why there is regulation around the terms bank, banking, what the company actually does, because there can be consumer confusion if you don't make the relationship clear and don't make clear where your money actually sits. I got a like refinance finance my loan a few a couple of years ago. And it was with some startup basically. And it kept getting shunted between different like loan providers. And it was tough for me to figure out how to actually manage the loan or figure out like where is the loan actually coming from? Who had it? Who do I actually call to go make a change in the loan or do something? Like where's the loan agent? So I think if you're not thoughtful about how you actually manage the back end, it can end up being this really frustrating customer experience where it's like you have a pretty dashboard, but then everything underneath is just like a mess. And it's not, there's no way to access it. There's no way to touch or talk to a real person, that sort of thing. So that's something we're mindful about at Mercury. I appreciate that. And I think it speaks to one, there's still a benefit to maturity in these spaces. And two, even if it looks good on the surface, just like you're saying, you still, if you're a customer, if you're a startup digging in, you still need to understand really what some of these new fintechs are offering. So maybe building on that. You know, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Actually, sorry, that actually goes back to the product thing I was talking about earlier, where it's, it's not just that we can build a great looking dashboard. It's literally every piece underneath is thought through as a product. 
And I don't want to make it seem like this really, I don't know, like Silicon Valley supremacy sort of a thing where it's like, oh, like we're so smart. We're so good at building products. And I'm thinking about like the, you saw this a few years ago, there was an article about the Golden State Warriors owners who were like, we're going to take the VC model and extend it to basketball. And they got roasted because they were like, you're not that smart. You're just doing like typical basketball things. I don't want to make it seem like we're doing some like revolutionary thing where it's like, oh, this like Silicon Valley product banking is being applied to banking. It's like changing the whole industry. It's just you hire great people and they just think this stuff through so that it makes sense at the surface level when you have a great dashboard, at the risk compliance level, at the rails level, at the level where you're scaling your company, you need great software to operate your company at that point. You're like thinking through the whole way. Yeah. I do think there's a benefit from coming at it, just as you said at the top of the show, from a product lens, whereas banks traditionally have come at it from a risk lens. And that difference is subtle, but you can see it extend, especially as these products become more developed. I'm actually curious, you've mentioned a few times that through Mercury's evolution, you've matured, but really you've become more opinionated. And I think that's more opinionated on what the product really should look and feel like for your customer base. Obviously, it's built on a lot of data. But talk to me a little bit about how you and the team stay close to customers, to their needs, especially as you think roadmap, as you think getting outside of just the Kind of that core of holding holding accounts, managing transactions on behalf of customers, i.e. moving the money. As you move into more and more different types of products, how do you make sure that your opinion is right? Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't think we strive for the right opinion necessarily, because I think there's a lot of different ways. There are a lot of like correct answers to how to build a great banking app, but we strive to have our own developed opinion, something that we can like firmly believe in. And maybe I'll separate your question to two parts of it, which is there's the baseline, which is around customer understanding. And that's just the fundamentals of running a great product org. So that's like, you'll hear this all the time. Great product leaders say, we're customer obsessed. We're talking to customers every week. We're super responsive to feedback. We're staying close to the customer, et cetera, et cetera, which is, that's just the fundamentals of building a technology product, basically. It's like doing scales when you're playing piano. You just need to have technique. Yeah, you got to know how to do arpeggios. Or you got to know how to dribble the basketball if you're playing basketball. That's, you got to be able to talk to customers and get customer feedback. But where I think a lot of companies actually don't go far enough is they don't have their own strong enough opinion outside of what customer feedbacks are on like what the right product experience is and what the product should be. If you draw an analogy, I think a close one might be thinking about... You ever watch these movies on Netflix that are like... They're just clearly made by the algorithm. So it's like... We'll take this director, we'll throw in Ryan Gosling, we'll set it in wine country in France, and we know this is going to be like a, a shit Netflix thing. Like, keep, millions of people are going to watch it this holiday season. The holiday movies, movies like this, and everyone knows this was made by the algorithm. It was, the director did not want this, the writer did not want this, handcrafted by the algorithm. And that's like the extreme of taking customer feedback into the product, right? These are the things that customers want, but there's no opinion. There's no artistry in how you're actually thinking about how do I make something that people actually love? And I think that can be really true in just building regular technology products too, is if you go too far to an extreme, you end up with a very generic product. So something that doesn't have a strong point of view, something that doesn't, honestly, doesn't even make the people working on it happy because they don't have the ability to express what they value in a product and what they think is like the right way to build things. So I guess what we try to do is the fundamentals, talk to the customer, but then develop our own strong points of view, our own opinions on what the right product is and how it should be built. I'll go back to onboarding because it's something that we think about a lot at Mercury, but this is a great example of how we had an opinion beyond 
the baseline, I guess. Because if you think about, if you talk to probably 10, 100 customers, what do you want from onboarding? You probably say, uh, we want it to be online, first of all, which is, everyone can agree on that. We want it to be fast, we want it to be simple, we want it to be as efficient as possible. But very few users would say something like, when we sign up for a bank account, we want it to feel like we've come home or like we've arrived in a place that's been tailored just for us. And that's like the opinion we have at Mercury. We'll even make trade-offs in the product on speed, for example, to actually make the user feel a little bit more welcome. So for example, at the very beginning, we added an optional field so that you could write down which investors had invested in your company. We pulled in data from the Crunchbase database. So even like a tiny angel investor, some like random person named Mike would probably show up if they'd done a check before. I think something like over 50% of our top depositors actually end up filling out that field, even though it was optional. And the emotion we were trying to create there was this feeling of we were welcome, we've arrived. This is an experience that understands who we are as a customer and will actually give us a better experience. That's an opinion we have about onboarding is it's not enough to be fast. It has to make you feel like you actually belong here, that you should want to use the product. I love it. And while not all of us have the not the luxury, but the good fortune to be building basically for ourselves and our own company. I think that's a particularly savvy point of, hey, we can inform our own opinions when it comes down to some of these fundamentals, obviously informed by the data, the research, so on and so forth. So Jason, maybe to close, onboarding, that experience clearly was core to the start of Mercury. Obviously, the company is growing and scaling quite rapidly. What advice would you have for other founders, other folks in similar a product or an operations executive sort of chair, other tech companies scaling? Like, How would you generalize some of your lessons and learnings? What advice would you provide to the audience, especially at that scale stage? I think I would repeat conventional wisdom here and really hammer home hiring and just being over-investing in hiring, basically. I think that's the thing that people always say is hire great leaders into your company. And I, I would definitely repeat that. And I would separate into two categories. So the first is if you really want to be a company that is known for building great products, you have to keep scaling a culture where people actually care about talking to the customers and building the product. It's a very simple idea, but it doesn't always action itself. And the way that we do it at Mercury is no matter what function you're hiring for, be it like onboarding, support, legal, risk, whatever it is, there's a segment of the interview that tests for customer and product instincts. You can go to any person at Mercury, have reasonable confidence that they are thinking through the products. And if they talk to a customer, they would be bringing the feedback back. For example, we had people on our fraud team with 30 years of experience from Wells Fargo investing in financial crimes. And you wouldn't expect the person in this role necessarily to be your typical tech company product thinker, but it's something we filter for. And it takes a little bit longer to hire, but we find these people, you can go into their workflow and you look. And when they talk to a customer, they recognize something is wrong. They will go talk to the product team directly and go try to get that like thing fixed. So that like culture extends across the entire company. And that's, I think, one of the keys to actually scaling an organization that really cares about building products still. Our controller actually gives us some of the best product feedback right now. Because Mercury is a Mercury user. We're 500 people at this point and we have everyone on the bank account different controls, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, we're trying to, we're trying to build to make sure we can meet a scaling finance team's needs. And our controller isn't like a product person, but she gives like the most incredible detailed, thoughtful product feedback. And that's not like an accident. We specifically hired slower for the controller role because 
we said, let's go make sure that this person passes the product interview and we would trust them to come in and give product feedback. So that's the extreme we go to there. So that's the first. The second is really hire in leaders. And you know, this is common advice, go hire your VPs, bring them in and let them scale the function for you. And we probably did this too late at Mercury. So we're a company that I guess invests a lot of our employees. We care a lot about employee growth. So we just said, hey, let's try to throw people into difficult problems and see how they can grow in their roles. And pretty good success from the company, but it was personally stressful for me and probably personally stressful for the people that got put into those roles because they had to learn all these new things from first principles. Whereas someone that's at least seen a little bit of it before can at least bring some lessons over and help you figure it out. So I would definitely say just make it more of a balanced mix. Obviously, you want to develop your talent at the company if you want to have a culture that rewards employees and that people actually want to work at your company long term. But you also want to make sure you bring out a little bit of outside expertise to help scale. And when I'm hiring leaders, I basically tend to look for two things. The first is I want to establish that the baseline of intuitions that I have is roughly in line with the baseline of intuitions they have. And we're operating from the same principles. And the second thing is, I guess, as a founder or someone who's early on at the company, you're not really running out of problems to solve. You're not running out of ideas for how things could be better, but it's become increasingly hard for you as a company scale to operationalize it, to figure out how do I actually get this thing that's in my head done? And does it actually make sense? And how can we actually be done in the next six months, not just like the next two years? And so ideally, what can happen is if you have a strong enough intuition and thought yourself on what matters, and you talk to someone and they can articulate it better than you can, and they can structure it into these six areas basically that we have to focus on. And they can identify the gaps in those areas, and then they can come up with a 30, 60, 90 day plan to actually address them. That's when it actually makes sense. So the principles you're operating on are the same, and then they can operationalize it and add to it and augment it and bring their own vision into it and actually make it happen over a time scan. Yeah, those would be the, the tips I would give out. Yes. Jason, I love it. And especially that kind of when it comes down to hiring leaders, kind of are we operating from a same set of principles that I think to your point that is classic advice heard many times, but but maybe easily forgotten when it comes to comes to some of these pieces. Jason, I'd like to wrap things up and just given our audience, I hope any startups out there listening, considering banking options, you take a look at Mercury. I think Jason, I appreciate you giving us a good rundown or a good framework for thinking about both the benefits for customers looking at these types of options, as well as some of the watch outs, some of the helping educate folks a little bit on what they really need to know as they're making choices about whether to use a fintech, a traditional bank, so on and so forth. So Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Before we wrap up, could you tell listeners where, if they have questions, they want to go deeper on some of these topics, where they could connect with a team at Mercury, maybe on social media, but where they could connect to learn a little bit more. I don't actually know the answer to this. Where, where can people connect to learn more? Mercury on Twitter, at Mercury on Threads, I guess. It's like the new thing. Help at Mercury.com. Feel free to ping me directly, Jason at Mercury.com. And I can either answer questions myself or move you into the right team member. Fantastic. We'll also we'll link to a few of those in the show notes. But again, Jason, thank you for sharing your time and your insight with us today. And for the audience, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. As I mentioned, we'll link to any other resources that we mentioned in the show notes. And thank you again. Keep a lookout for the next episode. It was fun, Brian. Make sure to like and subscribe, everyone. I always wanted to say that. Thank you for listening to the SMB Tech Innovators podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. 
This episode of the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast is brought to you by Gusto Embedded. Gusto has spent a decade building and testing its payroll, tax filing, and compliance infrastructure, which is available as a robust set of APIs so you can develop custom-tailored payroll solutions. For more information, go to embedded.gusto.com.